we sometimes talk about people revolving in separate existence. Reborn in my next life or through the twelve links people cycle in samsara. And using that kind of language in a conventional way is okay, but often what happens is we uh, give it a little bit more meaning and we begin to feel like there's a real person there that cycles in samsara. There's a person, a real concrete person who creates ignorance, who, who has ignorance and generates karma. And that karma is planted on that person's consciousness so that that person at the end of their life when craving and grasping and becoming happen, then that person goes on to the next life and takes a new body and a new mind. We often, it's so easy because of our habit to feel that there's a real person in there that is going from life to life, a real person that is taking up the five aggregates, a real person that is caught in samsara. And if we think like that, then we've actually missed the whole point of the explanation on the 12 links of dependent origination. Because the 12 links are not the way that the Buddha worded them. There's not the word I, a person, in there. It's from ignorance comes compositional action. From compositional action arises consciousness and so on through the twelve links. So when we look and examine a little bit deeper, when we say there's a person who's caught in samsara, the person who takes the five aggregates, who or what is that person? Whenever we use the word I, we feel like there's some real independent person there. But when we ask ourselves, who is it that goes from one life to the next? Who is it that's caught in cyclic existence? When we really begin to search in the aggregates, separate from the aggregates, we can't find a person there. There's just all these processes going on, causes giving rise to effects that create 
other causes that give rise to more effects. And we simply give the label person to an appearance that there's no real person there. When we think like this and apply it, then we see that there's no inherently existent person that's born, no inherently existent person that creates karma, no inherently existent person that dies. There's simply what is labeled on the basis of other factors that are not a person. When we train our mind to look at things like this, stuff loosens up a little bit. We aren't so reactive to other people because we begin to see that there's no truly existent person there to be reactive to. It's good to try and keep that awareness throughout the day. Be mindful of the lack of a findable person and how things exist, people included, simply by being labeled. That's all. There's nothing there. Just the label. Okay. And as soon as we open our eyes, it looks like real people, doesn't it? <laughs> there are all those real people out there from their own side, you know? And they're not just their names. There's real personalities in there who, and that's who they really are, unchanging. You know, always have that personality, always will have it. Always will be that that person. Even when they die, they're just going to be exactly the same. You know? Yeah. You see how the wrong... Con- we're so familiar with the strong conception mind, aren't we? Yeah. And you can see how we just get so reactive. There are real people out there. That's all the personality. And I don't like it. They should be different. Or... Oh, I like it. Oh. You know? We're just bouncing off the things that our mind has projected and created. Mm-hmm. 
Somebody once um, told me the, the little uh, slogan, pickpocket, see pockets. Okay? Uh, most of us, you know, when you walk down the street, do you notice people's pockets? I don't even notice what they're wearing. I can't even tell you what somebody was wearing afterwards, you know? We don't look at pockets, so they're not a big deal. But if you're a pickpocket, boy, you see everybody's pockets. And that's what most, the most important thing that you see about them is their pockets. You know, you don't even see the rest of their clothes or how tall they are or how old they are. All you see is the pockets because that's what you're interested in. And so the, the same way we each have it in our own mind, this kind of lens through which we interpret everything. One of the lenses, of course, is me. Not you, me. How everything affects me. But then we'll also learn different things. Like if you're studying psychology, then you interpret everything through a psychological viewpoint. Mm -hmm. Or if you study uh, medicine, then when you look at everybody, you're thinking about their medical history. And if you study... Uh, you know, gender issues, then everything appears as a gender issue. And if you're studying racial issues, then everything appears as a racial issue. And if you're studying ecology, then everything appears as an ecological issue. You know, and we think that that's what it is out there. But instead, we're having a viewpoint that we're superimposing on just all these parts, you know, and we're superimposing that viewpoint and then, you know, different things kind of coagulate. So it's not to say none of those things aren't true, you know, conventionally they may have some sense, but they're not some inherently existent objective reality about what's going on there, you know, all our things are just viewpoints. So just, just a couple of um, messages I wanted to share with you from inmates. One is from um, from um, James um, Lilly at, at Airway Heights, mm-hmm. and uh, he's. I think we have some other letters from him. He's just thanking us for being able to participate in the retreat. Um, because he said, what it has done for my level of commitment to a daily practice is astounding. At first, to say it was a chore to remain attentive uh, through the whole practice would be putting it mildly. I kept catching myself dozing off during meditation. That has all changed. I still have the same 14-hour schedule because he works and goes to school. The difference is now I can hardly wait to get to my practice. would have to admit that when I first heard that this was going to be a three-month retreat, I thought that that uh, was an enormous amount of time. Now that we are more than halfway through, it has prompted this letter. My question is, after we are done with the Chenrezig retreat, what would you suggest as the next practice? So to reply to his question, I think you just keep doing the Chenrezig practice. Yeah? The end of retreat doesn't mean you stop the practice 
Okay. The retreat is a way to um, become familiar with Chenesi, to make Chenesi your friend. Yeah. And then having made a good friend with Chenresi, why stop it just when you get to a certain calendar date? No sense in doing that. You keep going and you keep on practicing. So I think uh, for all the people who are doing retreat from afar and all of you here too, just keep doing the practice even after the end of the retreat. And I think especially for the people from afar because it takes us a while to uh, transcribe and send out all the transcripts. Uh, If they stop the practice at the last day, then they're going to get all these transcripts uh, explaining the practice after they've already stopped, which would be a great pity. <laughs> yeah, because when you're getting it, I mean, you know, it's a really good opportunity to put it into your practice. So I really suggest just keep going after the end of the retreat. Okay. And then um, there's another card from uh, Ken in Missouri. And he's, um, he said, he's doing the retreat, he said, I uh, had a really great Lamin meditation on impermanence. Scared me something fierce. <laughs> That's good. So I dedicated a whole bunch of merit to meeting qualified teachers in the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, qualified teachers in the next life. And then um, he said later on, he said, finally, since my and everybody else's days are are limited, I quit smoking. Since I won't if I put it off, and I need all the merit and positive potential and good habits I can get. (laughs) So I think that's quite incredible, you know? I mean, why put off uh, stopping a bad habit? You know, I mean, because he's really seeing things in, in, in the correct way that, you know, our days are numbered. At the end of our lives, all we take with us is the karma. So if we're going to do something important, we should at least embark upon it now rather than say, manana la manana, <laughs> you know? Okay, so I thought that was quite a, a good insight I wanted to share with you. So now, how are all of you this last week? What's happening? Thinking about you aren't thinking. (laughs) 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 Nothing's coming up in your meditation. (laughs) (laughs) Might as well.
and I learned a lot about uh, reputation, partly from reading. I, I got a label for my experience, I think, because um, I'm listening to the um, camp's diving about that right now, and I didn't quite realize, you know, that reputation just fits, like, this small group, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> so I was going through some stuff with my body, you know, and the mental gymnastics around it, you know, which is the part that's unnecessary. And um, and it made me remember back that like about three weeks ago I came into the meditation hall as the bell was gone. And, and it was like, there wasn't any sound in there except for the gong, but it was so loud in my mind what you guys were saying to me. I was like shouting it. Walking in the meditation hall, it's totally silent. 
but in your mind other people are screaming all their opinions of you at you <laughs> you know <laughs> and how much we get involved in what we think they think and then in contrast this woman that you dealt with um, you know when you were working as a physical therapist who just was dilapidated but who just said I can try as if it were the most natural thing in the world there was no oh well I guess I can try you know there's just yeah I'm gonna try (laughs) but but just yeah just did it and and what what you said too that we are often so wrapped up in our stories of what we think they think that we're totally out of touch with what we think mm-hmm. and what we feel and we, we don't even often bother to consider it and instead we just take other people's opinions or reactions or what we think their opinions and reactions are and we um, uh, take them in as if that were really us you know somebody else tells me I'm talented oh I must be somebody else tells me I'm stupid oh I must be you know, somebody else said what I did was right or wrong or considerate or inconsiderate oh well it must be just as they said and we never bother to evaluate and assess what we think you know, what was my motivation when I said that forget what other people think about it what was my motivation why do I why did I do that and how do I feel having done that and if we feel good about something then it doesn't matter what other people think and if we feel bad about something it also doesn't matter what they think yeah because we're the ones who create our own karma so it, I see so often people seem to go through their whole life trying to become what they think other people think they should be yeah. and, and you can't really live a life trying to become what you think they think especially if you haven't even asked them yeah. and so we get very tangled up in this thing about reputation and it also makes us do all sorts of funny things to get other people to like us you know we think so and so likes people who are intelligent so therefore I'm going to act intelligent we think so and so likes people who are artistic therefore I'm going to act artistic so whoever we want to like us we try and figure out what we think they like and then we try and show that side of ourselves and it's um, and then of course problems come up afterwards because we're putting on a big show and uh, you know and they're usually putting on a big show too (laughs) whereas I think if we find that space inside of ourselves that that has some kindness to ourselves and others and if you relate from that place of kindness then what we think they want us to be is is irrelevant you know it's like you saw that 
when Kamsa Rinpoche went into to Airway Heights, you know, Kamsa Rinpoche was just who he was, mm-hmm. you know, and he wasn't there and he wasn't trying to impress the the guys in the group with being this or being that. He just sat down and said what he had to say and and that was it. And uh, I think there was something quite beautiful about that. Not, none of this. Yeah, how we often so try, so often try and put forth an image of ourselves, and then get very tangled up in it, and then worry about what their image of us are is, as if that's all they had to do in life was to think about what they thought about us. <laughs> you know, like you walk in the meditation hall, and they're all screaming their ideas of you at yourself. Boy, you must be really important that that's all they can think about in their meditation is what they think about you. <laughs> you know? And it's so funny because whatever group we're with, we are very attached to our reputation, you know? And get so tangled up in all of that. It's very good to kind of learn to laugh at ourselves a bit and then just put that down. It's miserable and miserable having the same home. Same <laughs> difficulty with me. Yeah? So, it's great to see the effect of last time. You've been worrying about what other people think about you? Yeah, especially because there are two, there are two days in a row and... Uh, I was late for credit offering, and then for like, you know, the next two days after that, just of the day before you wasn't here, so I was going to and I kept coming up late. And the same thing, I walked in, and all of a sudden I was like so concerned, you know, oh, they're all chanting, you know, but I bet they're thinking about me, you know. <laughs> oh, I'm sure they were. Then the energy of, you know, that sort of thinking rolled on, and then it sort of like long after that incident has you know, stop, you're still wondering, you know, if you walk by that person, you know, are they thinking, you know, you know I wish you, you never came, you know, or whatever, you know. So, yeah. that's totally unhelpful, unprofitable thinking. Yeah. yeah. Well, have you noticed how we're all, like, some of the time, that's what I've noticed, sometimes, it's my day. Alex. Working with that other people?
we have to we have to work at that level. It seems, and we have to um, you know be responsible for what perceptions or conceptions are going on. We have to think of them. And, yeah, so on one hand, you can't get caught up in them. Does it make sense what I'm saying? On the other hand, they seem very they're very important because this is why wars are fought. People don't like each other based on, you know, for whatever conceptions they have. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you, you can, so you're saying, like, on one hand, conceptions are just things that our mind makes up. On the other hand, they're very important in the functioning of the world because it's through conceptions that we relate to each other and, you know, through conceptions that we either like each other or dislike each other or help each other or harm each other. Mm-hmm. So their conceptions are important. Um, yeah, it, well, you know, when you really look at it, you see how this whole world, are, and especially if you just look at society, the whole thing is conception. You know, what we consider polite and impolite is just whatever a particular group, uh, you know, conceptualizes as polite and impolite. But boy, when somebody's impolite, we are really offended. But it's just our own conceptual mind, everybody's conceptual mind together, that said, oh, well, this is okay, but that's not okay. And then, it, it just in terms of what, what is mine and what belongs to others, that's all based on conception. Mine is just a label. Mm-hmm. And yet, we definitely fight wars over mine, don't we? And if you look at... The, um, like in, in the Middle East there's so much going on there's the Jews and the Sunnis and the Shiites and the, this group and the, that group and all those groups are just labels you know there's just the development of a certain conceptual uh, a name that's coming from a concept and then certain um, qualifications to belong to each group that are also invented by our conception Now the problem happens when we make all these things very solid and we don't realize that it's our conceptual mind that is creating all these categories and groups and and relationships and things like that. And 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 we forget that we're the ones who gave the labels and instead we think that all those things are that way from their own side. And that's that's why when things get really difficult mm-hmm. yeah and so I think one of the things about conception from our side at least is to bear in mind that it's always something that is you know just as a society we just created norms and concepts and you know and that that's all it is but yeah? mostly we don't do that we, we don't do that and that's why we get in trouble so what we're practicing Dharma for is to help us be more aware of how we create all these things. Yeah? Because, for, for example, if I, have, if I was raised in a certain way about what is polite and what's not polite, okay? it's a very minor thing, isn't it? Yeah? But if I was raised in that way and I just assume, you know, because everybody I was around acted that same way, everybody else conceptualized manners in the same way, 
and I thought that's just exactly the way it should be then when I go to another culture and they're acting different I think oh these people are so uncouth you know they must be inferior because they're doing this or they must be uneducated or they must be stupid uh, you know and all sorts of judgments came. of course they're thinking the same thing about me because I have you know but if, if, I, if I'm aware that all this thing is just a product of my own um, conditioning and my own conceptual mind and the conceptual mind of the particular people I grew up with then when I go into a different culture I don't start imputing all these things and I don't start interpreting people's actions in that way you know instead there's kind of more space and there's a little bit more curiosity okay so I mean that's one of the things we're trying to to do in our Dharma practice is let go of how rigidly we hold on to to some of those conceptions have very, in my opinion, very valid experiences based on past experiences that cause them to respond to something in a particular way. And so it seems like, to me, I mean, because it's so easy things can happen. I, I was telling that, remember I was telling you, when I was down in the South, there was, um, a, they had the center, and most of the volunteers at the center center were white people. And the the count or the parish that they went into, this or county, right, was um, predominantly African American. And when um, the county came in, they were in a from a county that was considered not very much damaged, so they weren't given funds. And because they went into the building and they saw mainly white people, they thought it was discrimination. And it was that was a valid response because they had experience of talking with a few people because. There was there was so much anger at that center, there and they felt so they felt so discriminated against because they had these previous responses that were valid and people had very awful you know responses so they come in and they see these white people are discriminating against them and that's what's going on mm-hmm. you know and that's when they tell reality okay so so what you're saying is we might have certain experiences like especially in in uh, a racial situation if you've received discrimination a certain amount mm-hmm. so whenever you come into a certain mm-hmm. situation um, you know you perceive it as discriminatory well, you're aware that it could be you're aware that it could be discriminatory mm-hmm. yeah this is a, a really good example of pickpockets seeing pockets yeah mm-hmm. because we all get conditioned by our own thing and that makes us aware of certain elements that other people aren't aware of mm-hmm. and so we're super sensitive about certain things the people we're interacting with may not share those same sensitivities but because we're very sensitive when we go in we see oh discrimination where maybe from the side of the other person there wasn't that happening but because we've had we face so much of it ourselves then that's what we see okay or I mean another kind of situation is you know if we've had a a lot of conditioning in our life of um, going into situations and just not 
uh, making friends very easily, then we're always kind of um, ready for, for feeling like people don't like us, or we don't belong, or we don't fit in. So then whenever we go into any new situation, you know, we're seeing it through those eyes of our past conditioning. Now it's true, it might be valid, maybe other people don't like us, or in a racial context, maybe they are discriminating against us. You know, those could be valid um, things that we're tuning into. However, sometimes what those things do is they make us much more sensitive to things than we need to be. And we see pockets where there are only folds in the clothes. Yeah? And then our, our mind gets really turned up about something. And then we talk to somebody else about it, and they're sitting there going like, huh? You know? So what we're seeing is that we're all living. We all don't come freshly to situations because we're coming with all this bag of conditioning behind us. You know? And I think, you know, when they say Zen mind, beginner's mind? Yeah, I never understood that. But I think what they're saying is when we try and go into situations, instead of carrying so much previous conditioning with us, to try and look at it in a fresh way. Oh, these are mother sentient beings. I mean, my mom is in the hospital now. Her conditioning, how she's seen, seen things, is people aren't taking good enough care of, of me. Yeah? And so whatever the nurses are trying to do, somehow, you know, it, it isn't meeting her standard. It's causing her a lot of misery. But I'm sure that the nurses are trying to do the best they can, considering they have a whole floor full of people to take care of. But what I'm getting at is when we let this previous conditioning, uh, when we make it too solid and believe in it, uh, we create a lot of um, me and you and this and that and unnecessary um, antagonism between people. But by being insensitive to it, you can create antagonism. By being insensitive, you can be, uh, you can create antagonism. But if you, um, okay, let me give another situation. Let's say you had some encounter with somebody, with a friend, and there were some things said, and you know you weren't very nice to them, and they weren't very nice to you. And you know how the next time you see that person you feel a little bit ill at ease and you're, you know how that is? Mm-hmm. You're feeling ill at ease and it's like you, you tend to shut up and look down and <laughs> you know how it is, you know? <laughs> it's like something happened and you're still kind of mad at them or, you're, or, or you feel like they're mad at you. You know, but you don't want to apologize because what they did was really wrong. You know, you're glad you said that, but you don't feel so good because they're clearly not happy with you. So then you want to keep your mouth shut. And, you know, and you come into the, the, next, the situation the next time you see that person with your mind like she was, walking into the meditation hall and everybody's screaming at her even though it's silent. 
So you're walking in to be with that person and all your own projections and opinions are all there like twirling around with you, with you, you know? And so then you try and have a conversation with that person and then, you know, it's just so, you know, you're like walking on pins and needles because you're afraid to say the wrong thing because they might get mad again. But on the other hand, you're listening for every slight tone of voice and every what word choice they're saying because maybe they're still they're, they're still mad at you or maybe they're sorry but they're too proud to say that or you know and so you're like sitting there listening like exactly how their tone of or what words which and then you're trying to say everything so delicately and and it's like stressful, isn't it? Yeah. What would happen if you had that situation with somebody there was whatever happened and you dropped it you walked into the person the next morning and said hi how are you and you really meant it it wasn't like you were trying to pretend nothing happened is you really had put that down and you were walking in completely fresh yeah the situation would look totally different wouldn't it you know because we wouldn't have all of our own stuff screaming at us. So this is the same thing when we condition ourselves. And I, I come from a religious minority. I know very much, very well, what it's like to grow up feeling like, you know, you better be careful because you don't know if they're going to put you in a concentration camp next week. Okay? And... um when you have all those preconceptions and you live like that, then you see prejudice everywhere. It's based on bad experience. It's based on experience. I don't know how the experience in the past occurred, but why I should assume that the people in the past are going to be like the people in the future, that's me projecting. And the extent to which I was hurt in the past, you know, two people experience the same situation. One person's really upset about it, one person isn't. Yeah? In seventh grade, somebody, I remember this so clearly, I'm going to show you what I was like. Um, <laughs> this is another one, you know, Rosie Knox, I, I do know my thing, I'm waiting for her. Peter Armetta, I'm waiting for him to show up at one of my teachers. Peter Armetta, in seventh grade, made this incredible anti-Semitic remark. And I, you know, and because I had all had all this conditioning about, you know, the Holocaust and the, the this and the that and all these people who died and, you know, and this, one anti-Semitic remark, I left that classroom, I spent the whole day crying in the bathroom. Okay? And I vowed never to speak to Peter Armetta again as long as I live. You know, and I went through, because we were in all the same classes, you know. All through junior high, all through high school, we both started USC early in the same program. I didn't talk to him. You know? <laughs> because I was brought up that if somebody is prejudiced against you, they are bad, they are evil, you cut them out of your life. You know, and you let people know that you're not going to stand for any prejudice. So I made a big hullabaloo in that seventh grade class. I mean, 
Mrs. Mikowski and Mr. Reese, but you know, I don't know what they went through. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know, it was coming from my mind. It was coming from my mind. I didn't need to get so upset. I didn't need to get so reactive. You know, I could have realized, okay, somebody said something. I could have made a calm comment about, you know, I don't think it's fair to generalize. But I didn't need to take it personally. I didn't need to make it part of my identity for all of those years and cause myself and other people so much misery. Yeah. It can make for tremendous suffering. I lived with a Jewish man for eight years and I saw how he suffered. The way you described yeah. him, he continues to suffer. He has such a tight little group of friends and even people that, his service people have to be Jewish. He's so confined in his life. It's very, very sad. It's just really suffered so much yeah yeah and you could you know Carrie would say oh well that's valid you know they killed six million Jews but you know are you going to carry that around your whole life it's, it makes you very miserable but it's not even just that I mean there's definitely groups out there to this day that have a very strong dislike for people who are of particular yeah. Ethnicities or religious beliefs. Right. And so it's, it's almost like, because I know from my side, it's, it's, you know, that whole idea of privilege. I don't have to worry about somebody saying, you're Irish. Well, who cares? It's like, it's not even an identity to be Irish. I'm not even conscious of being But that. years ago, if you were born mm-hmm. 200 years ago in New York. Well, yeah. that, but I mean, but that was, it's different. There are no groups out there trying to kill Irish people right now. None. Or that are... Yeah, but see, the the extent to which we assume an identity, you know, because we're many identities, aren't we? You know, we all have. we're all human beings we have an identity we have a gender identity a racial identity an ethnicity identity a religious identity a socioeconomic identity a hair color identity a tall and short identity a fat and thin identity an athletic and non-athletic identity an artistic and non-artistic identity a smart and a dumb identity we can go on ad infinitum with all of our identities and depending upon which identity we fixate at, we see the world through that identity. Okay? And so all the other identities become less important because at certain times in our life we're fixated on certain ones. You know, when I was young, I was fixated on my Jewish identity, you know, and then I was fixated on my girl identity how to attract a guy you know that was the, the whole thing you know the meaning of being a teenager you know and then you know your your academic identity and we just create all these identities and we're the ones that make them important and they are all conventionally existent 
But to the extent to which it is important or unimportant depends completely on our own mind. And I remember very well when there was one uh, African-American woman in Seattle who came to a Cloud Mountain retreat and at the end of it she said this was... um, she said this was the first I realized at the end of the retreat she said this was the first time I was invisible to myself yeah she said so often she made such a big deal out of being African American that she sets herself off from other people automatically because that's what she's supposed to do and she said I was I was invisible to myself and I felt like such a part of the group and this was the experience in the first retreat you know she set herself off she was different why were you different? oh I was living in a cabin oh yeah you were living in a cabin okay yeah yeah so she was different from everybody else because she was living in the cabin she didn't fit in they didn't like her she couldn't relate to them she saw everything through that you know and was miserable until halfway through the retreat when she Drop the identity because I moved into the cabin. <laughs> but do you see what I'm getting at? How, how we create these things and then latch onto them. And there is some conventional reality, but how do we react to that conventional reality? You know? And how much do we just exaggerate the conventional reality? It's like from the viewpoint of Americans, you know, we, you know, people, people in America hardly knew anything about Islam until a few years ago. You know, it's like Islam. Um, yeah, I guess I heard of it. You know, they something. You know, and and now it's like uh, they know a little bit more. But when Americans look at what's going on in Iraq, they they phrase it as. Uh, you know, terrorists versus civilization, okay? And whereas the people in Iraq are, are putting it as Sunni versus Shiite. You know, the Americans don't look at it Sunni versus Shiite. They're terrorists, you know? And everybody's framing it in their own way, making up their own groups and their own identities, and being totally miserable in it. What about if we just had the identity of sentient being? You know, oh, there's a sentient being. But not everybody will have that idea. Let them manage themselves. My responsibility is my own mind. Okay, but but we're all part of different, so you could say on one hand we're ourselves, but we're all part of different groups or subgroups or whatever. Right, that's right. There's also that going on. But I think the main thing is we are all sentient beings. And instead of always looking at how I'm different from everybody else, if we train our mind to look at how I'm the same as everybody else, yeah, then even if somebody discriminates against you, you can still smile back at them. I mean, sometimes people... I remember one time I was walking down the street in Singapore, and it was on Orchard Road, the big shopping center, and somebody at the... We were stopped at a... Um, a crosswalk and somebody looked back and saw me and his face just went I mean this poor guy was like he saw somebody from Mars yeah now I could have responded by going oh he's prejudiced against me I'm a Buddhist must hate Buddhist 
or he hates people with bald hairs. He he must think that I'm a um, uh, you know an Aryan racist uh, you know from America coming to Singapore uh, to spread Aryan you know with, you know racism or you know oh he hates Buddhists and I'm sure he's going to discriminate. Maybe he has a shotgun there and he's going to shoot me because I'm Buddhist. Or maybe maybe you know he hates people with with bald hair because he thinks we all have cancer and that he's going to catch cancer from us. And I could have seen this guy's expression in any kind of way and gotten totally paranoid about it. But, you know, I am so used to people responding in different ways to me that whenever I get something like that, I smile back. All you do is smile back. Hi. I'm a human being. You're a human being. If you project chips on me, that's okay. That's your thing. I don't care. It's not going to affect me. Yeah? But you see, if I didn't think like that, I could walk around paranoid all the time about, you know? I mean, mean, the number of times in airports people come up to me, you know, and one time this woman came up and, uh, you know, sat down beside me and put her hand on my head and said, It'll get better, dear, you know, don't worry, you'll recover. You know, I mean, she thought I was a cancer survivor. Yeah? And, and you know, it was so kind of her to do that. I was a total stranger, you know? For her, she projected cancer survivor on me because I had no hair. And, you know, she was so kind because she was also a cancer survivor. And I could have, you know, gotten paranoid. Oh, no, maybe it means I'm getting cancer. Or I could have gotten angry. Don't you know what a Buddhist nun is? I'm not a cancer survivor. You know, I mean, I could have been so offended or whatever. But it was just, I just thought, wow, what a, what a sweet gesture that she made. And, and I just said, thank you very much. You don't, I'm okay. I'm a Buddhist nun. And, you know. yeah. yeah? But I mean, it, so you see how we, inter- how we label something in our own mind and create it in our own mind is going to determine how we react to it. Yeah? Somebody else, I remember in Seattle, I was sitting there in the airport and somebody's walking up to me with this big smile on their face and meanwhile I'm going okay now where do I know them from because I give talks in so many places and they're looking walking up like they really know me I'm going uh oh where do I know them from and she sits down and she says it's Jesus (laughs) (laughs) you know you should believe in Jesus honey (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Now, I could have gotten really offended, you know. I'm a Buddhist. What are you doing trying to convert me, you know? In a public place, you're trying to convert me. You're impinging on my freedom to sit here without any disturbance, you know. I could have gotten so upset. You know, if I had grasped onto that identity and made a big us and them thing, you know, another one of those born again people, you know. <sighs> but it's, 
just like, you know, if you don't conceptualize things like that, then people don't appear that way to you, and you relate to them completely differently. But it's appropriate sometimes. Just like if you take, for example, rules apart, you know, they said, go to the back of the bus, she said, I'm not going to the back of the bus, and she made a stand, and they mm-hmm. understood more. Or people say, or mm-hmm. people respond to something very strongly, and it makes that person think about it in a way that they wouldn't have. Right, but you can be very clear in your response without hanging on to a personal identity about something. Because you see, when you're hanging on to a personal identity, you're just going to react against the other person. And you're not going to be very skillful in how you point it out. Mm-hmm. And there's the motivation, because, like, when, uh, just like with parenting, sometimes you have to be firm. But there's a kind of firmness that's love, and then there's kind of firmness where they've lost it, you know. Yeah. And so the motivation behind some you know, of that, I think, is right. important. You know, and so when you know when to make strong statements, and you can do so, but without being turned up inside, then you're going to be much more skillful when you do that. Like if, if Rosa Parks had gone in that bus and said, You beep, 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 there's no way I'm going to go to the back of the bus, you beep, 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 you know, and thrown her groceries at him and screamed and yelled and, you know? Yeah. It was the fact that she was, you know, she didn't do all of that. Yeah, she still has Yeah. I have a question. Uh-huh. just have that sense of, of yeah. me. Because what happens when I sometimes I'm in like a more like a place I'll take it calm and then I go, Here I am again. Try to find me. You have to find me. I'm here. I'm here. So I try to decide, okay, well there's not a person in the thought, there's not a person in the feeling, you know, I'm kinda of looking at all the things, but it's still there's this little oh well, it's not the voice, it's not the sound of the voice, you know, I'm kinda of not finding any uh-huh. of those things. So what I was wondering is, is uh, it feels like the person. Mm-hmm. You never find the person. Mm-hmm. But that person exists conventionally? Yeah, there's a conventionally. So you're asking that when you're sitting there calmly in, in your meditation, yeah, there, there may not be some huge sense of I, but there's definitely a sense of I'm sitting here on this cushion, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm me. I'm not somebody else. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it can be very light. Even your your body is kind of like gone, you know, but still in your mind. I'm going to exist forever and nothing is going to make me stop. Right, so that thing. Yeah. What's the label for that thing? That is what we're, what we're the object of that is the inherently existent I mm-hmm. and the mental factors that preceding it is the, the, the jigta, the wrong view, the perishing aggregates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's like the misconception. Yeah. But what I, and then the other thing I was kind of hadn't really appreciated before is when we talk about this misconception, a lot of misconceptions are like, um, well, I thought about it like this. You're learning CPR, you're sitting in a classroom, and you're misunderstanding something, right? Mm-hmm. So you have this misconception. And it's very much in your head. And that's why sometimes some translators uh, translate it as conception of the eye. And to me, that just seems very theoretical. We just, yeah, we just have a conception of the eye. And that's why I call it grasping the eye. Because grasping is, I mean, that gives you much more a kinesthetic feeling of there's, you know. And it is, it's not just like, like you said, you just don't. It's not like you just correct your notes because you had a wrong idea, but it's 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 uh, a way of seeing things that you hold as 100% real mm-hmm. that you've never doubted mm-hmm. at all. And that thing is that called the mirror eye? The <laughs> <laughs> they talk about different objects of of a of a. Um, of a mind, mm-hmm. okay. So there's the there's the um, sometimes they call it focal object or observed object, and then there's Jeffrey translated translates it as object of the mode of apprehension. Mm-hmm. I just call it apprehended object. Mm-hmm. Okay. When you're having that ignorance grasping at eye, the focal object is the merely labeled eye. That's the actual thing that exists but what we are apprehending is an inherently existent eye okay so it's like they, they often use the um, if, if I'm looking out and I, I go like this you know and I do something to my eye instead of one moon I see two moons okay the observed object is one moon. The object of the mode of apprehension is two moons. Mm-hmm. Okay? 
of the apprehended object is two moons. I'm perceiving two moons. That's the object I'm apprehending. I believe in that. Must be two moons. And that's actually false, false mistaken. Yeah. That's not, no. True. No, that's not even true. That's why we say that when we are grasping an inherent existence, the I that's appearing to our mind does not exist. Because that the I that's appearing to our mind is an inherently existent one. Mm-hmm. What in there is conventionally existent? The merely labeled I. The There's a merely labeled I that we have forgotten. That we we forgot that we're the one yeah. that gave it the label, and we think that it's radiating I-ness yeah. from its own side. About, uh, about the book, when you did the teachings in December, you said, I give a book. Here's the book on the table. Uh-huh. The book from its own side, if it had a consciousness, isn't sitting there saying, I'm a book, I'm a book, I'm a book. <laughs> we're the one that's saying it's a book. Yeah. It's just a bunch of, you know, pages and parts and this and that. Yeah. You know, they often use the, the example of the rope and the snake. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's dark and there's a rope coiled up and you look and you see snake and you go, ah, and freak out. Okay, there's absolutely no snake there. But what appears so vividly to your mind is a snake and you totally 100% believe that snake. You know, you believe that that's a snake. And if somebody came along and said there's no snake there, you might even say you're nuts. You know, because that's how much you are holding on to what you believe to be true. Don't tell me there's there's no snake there. There is. Okay, but it's only a rope. And that's how much we're listening to that little voice. Yeah. You know, it's like we, yeah, I mean, we give it that label and then we totally believe in it. And that's how we create so many identities. Just, you know, pull out something from that whole Claudius, you know, whole vast thing of stuff going on. We pull out something and, you know, Reify it mm-hmm. and then make a big deal about it. Mm-hmm. In, in prison, the guys are so sensitive to being respected. Mm-hmm. Yeah? And, you, you know, a lot of them came from backgrounds where they weren't respected in their families or, you know, whatever. Okay? But when your mind makes this big thing about, I've got to be respected. That you see everything in terms of is somebody respecting me. So if you're standing in the chow line and somebody else cuts, you know, comes up and, and comes in front of you, ooh, I mean, fights will start over that. Because the label being projected on that is you're not respecting me. And once you project that interpretation of what's going on and solidify it, that's all you see, that's all you believe, and you're going to kill for it. And this is why so many fights happen, not just in prison, but in the world. 
you know, because we just, you know, realize something or interpret something in a certain way and make it so incredibly important. And then, you know, it becomes important because we've made it important. I mean, instead of having racism, we could have brown-eyeism, you know, where everybody who has brown eyes is discriminated against. And then you develop this identity of I have brown eyes and they don't like me. And, you know, all these blue-eyed people, you know, or maybe the blue-eyed people are getting discriminated against, you know, whatever it is. But whatever we happen to pick out, then we can say they respect me or they don't respect me. And then... So you really see how a lot of suffering happens, don't you? Reminds me of the snitches and the star-bellied snitches. Dr. Seuss wrote a book about that. Uh-huh. Reminds me of when I was in high school and I visited this old this elderly woman in a county farm and she was didn't have a, she had some dementia and I took her to the Baptist church and I was Catholic, raised Catholic and she remember saying to me, you know, we didn't like those Catholics. I can't remember why, but we just didn't like them. <laughs> 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 